Good morning. It's good to see you for another semester. Over this semester, uh, in the time that we have together in Friday chapels, um, I'm hoping to look with you at the last book in the New Testament, and so the last book in our Christian Bibles, the book of Revelation. It's a book that uh, fascinates some Christian people, confuses others, and has still others keeping it at somewhat of an arm's distance, waiting until some later time to deal with it. At first glance, it doesn't seem as straightforward as the Gospels or the letters of Paul. Its imagery and language is quite strange to us. But it is a book which, right from the beginning, promises to bring great benefit to those who read it and who put what is said here into practice. This part of God's word says something very important to us. It was never meant to be mysterious. It wasn't written to confuse those who read it. It was important that this message be heard, understood and applied when it was first written. We'll see that in just a minute. And though we live in a different world and we're not as familiar with this kind of writing as those who first received it, the language and symbols that it uses, it's not meant to be mysterious or confusing to us either. It's just as important that it be heard, understood and applied today in our own contemporary situation. So will you take a look with me at the very first chapter of this book, the book of Revelation, and let's begin together to unfold its message. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet sounding, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Blessed are those that read aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and to keep what is written in it. Let's pray that that promise might be fulfilled in us this morning. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your word, your powerful, transforming word. And we pray that this morning, as we concentrate on it, you might take all other distractions from us and help us to hear you, that we might know why you have given us this part of your word, that we might not only hear it and understand it, but apply it, to put it into practice, to live in the light of it. We pray that you might do that work in us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What are you afraid of? I don't mean those silly jump scares that one of my daughters is right into for some inexplicable reason, loves jumping behind me and things like that. Uh, I mean serious fear ongoing fear, that fear that runs through your mind when you're alone, perhaps in the quiet of the night or early morning, the fear that threatens to paralyse you if you dwell on it, the fear that you try to push down and, 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 and hope it won't just come up again. In our setting, uh, both here in college and in ministry gener generally, could it be that you're terrified of failing? You have in your mind uh, an image of a successful student or a successful ministry and you're afraid you won't be up to it. That the ministry won't grow under your care and your peers will notice and you'll be just politely ignored. She was a waterless cloud that brought no rain. He didn't amount to anything in the end. Maybe you're afraid of conflict, that someone might take a disliking to you, that Everyone won't love you after all and the encouragements will be drowned out by the criticisms. Perhaps you've been working so hard to be everyone's friend or to be respected as the voice of reason and you fear that it won't work, that you won't be able to keep it up and that they really will hate you the way they hated Jesus. Or perhaps you're afraid of being found out. Something you've done that you're pretty sure no one knows about because if anyone did know, it would torpedo everything. People would immediately think less of you, not trust you, distance themselves from you. 
You don't want them to know the truth about you, at least not all the truth. Or perhaps you're afraid you might succumb to some serious illness or disease, that you might not be able to carry on with your life as you hoped you would. Perhaps you're afraid of death, knowing you can't get away from it, knowing that one day it will come for you, and in the meantime, the shadow of death is unrelenting and chilling. Perhaps it's not your death you're afraid of, but the death of someone close to you. How could you go on if that happened? Or perhaps you're terrified of persecution for your faith, that what has happened so many times before in history is starting to happen again, and it's only a matter of time before the repression that we've seen in places like Afghanistan and China and Iraq is a reality here too. Just teaching, just believing what the Bible teaches has had serious consequences for people in Europe, in the UK, in America, and in some parts of Australia. It's almost as if some things just can't be said in public anymore. There was an attempt earlier this year, wasn't it, that, uh, to ban the Bible from school libraries in one part of America because it's a dangerous book full of hatred and bigotry. Are we to expect these things to get worse? And what will that mean for me or my family? What are you afraid of? And how, in the light of the gospel, would you address that fear? The world into which the book of Revelation first appeared was a fearful place. The book doesn't have a date on it, but it's quite clear that it was originally received in a time of fierce persecution. Perhaps it was during the persecution that took place in the reign of the Emperor Nero in the 60s of the first century, or more likely, during the persecution that took place in the reign of the Emperor Domitian in the 90s of the first century. Either way, Christians were under intense pressure. There were calls to wipe them out entirely, and many were martyred. Aggressive, pagan Rome was fully in control, and it was a serious question whether Christian faith would survive. There was every good reason to be afraid, whether you were in the empire of Nero or the empire of Domitian. And God, in his goodness, in his mercy and kindness, gave the churches, all the churches, uh, the number seven in verse four indicates completeness, it's the number of the whole. God gave all the churches this book, a revelation of Jesus Christ, as it's described in verse one. And both parts of that little phrase are important. It's a revelation, an unveiling. The book lifts the veil and shows what's really happening, what's going on behind the scenes that makes sense of what's happening on the stage of human history, right throughout human history. This is not a code book. It's not a book of impenetrable secrets. It's an unveiling designed to bless those who read it and those who hear it read. And it is that because it is a revelation and unveiling of Jesus Christ. What you need to see, to understand, if you're to address fear on this scale, if you're to endure and persevere in a time of fear like this, is something about Jesus. 
Jesus is there right at the beginning of this book. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's there at the very end. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the first readers of Revelation, like its most recent readers, us, need to understand everything in the light of him. The things that very literally must take place soon must take place because of him. And look again at the richness of what is said about him from verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. It's he who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. It's he who is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And that's why glory and dominion belong to him forever and ever. What's happening now and what will happen soon all flows out of who he is and what he has already done. His death and resurrection, you see, change everything. The astonishing turning point in universal history has already happened. And what is being worked out now in our world are the inevitable consequences of that. The things that must soon take place. See, the rock of stability in a volatile world, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, is Jesus Christ. John wanted his readers to understand that. And it's nigh on impossible for him to contain, to hold off spilling that fundamental message right at the very beginning of this book. You want to know the truth? You want a faithful witness to the truth? It's Jesus. You want the answer to death in whatever ugly form it confronts you? It's Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. You think Nero or Domitian or any of today's rulers are running the show? Think again. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, oh, that's a powerful thing to hear, isn't it? Here is something, even in the very first verses, which addresses our anxiety, fear, terror or panic. The one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. That ancient promise fulfilled by him in us. He is the ruler of kings on earth. The reality is radically different from what sometimes it looks like when we look out on our world. But there's more. And what's going to propel us on in our journey through this book is what comes next. John, I'm pretty confident this is John the Apostle, the author of the fourth gospel, identified himself with those who read this book. He's not only a brother, he's their partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He'd suffered because of his testimony to Jesus, because he stood firmly on the word of God. He was unceremonially dumped on a rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. That, they thought, would silence him. But the Lord he served had other ideas, and one day, a Lord's Day, Sunday in our terms, John heard a voice coming from behind him, instructing him to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches. It was a loud voice behind him, a voice like a trumpet, startling, 
impressive, commanding. He had to see, just had to see who it was. And what he sees when he turns around and the explanation that he's given is the clincher. I don't think we're meant to imagine each piece of what he describes uh, and put together a picture in our own mind. It's a vision to be heard rather than seen because at one point after another, the words are echoing the words of the Old Testament. The one like a son of man from the vision of Daniel 7. The one given authority to rule and judge. The robe and the sash, the garments of a priest, according to Exodus 28. The white hair, the venerable old age and wisdom mentioned in Proverbs. The piercing insight of eyes like a flame of fire. The immovable victory of feet like burnished bronze. And that voice, more like a roar, the roar of many waters. The two-edged sword that comes from his mouth, the words that cut through pretense and confusion and go to the heart, the face shining like sun in full strength. These Old Testament elements all come together for the description of this astonishing majesty. A few months ago, uh, we saw all the pomp and ceremony of the coronation of King Charles III. And at the centre of it all was a frail old man who looked, frankly, lost at points. But what appears here in Revelation is no pretend majesty. It's the real thing. And there he is, with seven stars in his right hand, moving among the seven lampstands. John had faced the fury of the world that set itself up against Jesus. After all, that's how he ended up on Patmos, that inhospitable rock in the first place. He knew the fury of the world but what he saw on that Lord's Day made all of that look like play acting. Unimaginable glory and majesty, astonishing power and wisdom, all concentrated on this one figure, the one like a son of man, the one who can and does execute God's judgment. John's legs crumbled underneath him. He fell at his feet as though a dead man. But the very best bit is yet to come. This great majestic figure lays his hand upon him and says, fear not. It's a word of reassurance. It's not a new source of terror, this vision, but the reality that drives away terror. Fear not. It's all been done away with. What thrilling words the glorious, majestic Jesus says to him. Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. Nothing that happens in the middle will make the slightest bit of difference to that reality. He's the living one. Oh, yes, he died. He stared that enemy in the eye. But he's alive now, alive forevermore. And can you believe these words? I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys. He has control. They are not in control. Neither death nor the place of death is a cause for fear anymore. John, I have the keys. The keys of death and Hades. They're in his hand and no one can prize them out of there. Stand in front of him 
like John did and realise that success fades into the background in the face of him who is the first and last, the one with that piercing glaze that sees, the gaze that sees things as they really are. Stand in front of him and realise that opposition is puny and insignificant in the presence of him who has defeated death and holds the keys. Stand in front of him, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and realise whatever the shame or guilt we fear, it's been done away with by him. Stand in front of him and know that illness cannot win and even death cannot win in the end. He wins. He always wins. And stand in the front of him, the glorious one like a son of man who enacts the purposes and hands down God's judgment and realise that the rulers of the world might do their worst, but he sees and he knows and he will not let their judgment stand. The worst, their worst, will seem like a two-year-old tantrum. Noisy, genuinely distressing, but ultimately useless. But don't miss the last two glorious things in this chapter. Where is the glorious and majestic one? the executor of God's judgment, the victor over death and Hades, where is he to be found? In the midst of the lampstands. And as he himself explains, the lampstands are the seven churches. When the wind is howling, the crowds are baying for blood and our weakness is on display for all to see, where is he? He's in the midst of the churches. You remember the story of the three young men and Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3? They were resolutely faithful and refused to bow before the king's statue. And when the judgment fell, the king looked at the furnace and what did he see? Did we not cast three men bound into the fire, he asked. But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Where was the saviour on that day? In the midst of the judgment. And so in the midst of the fire with the boys. And here in Revelation 1, he's there in the midst of the churches, in the midst of all the opposition reigned against them. And what does he have in the hollow of his hand? With his fingers wrapped around them, keeping them safe? The angels, the messengers, clearly the pastors of the churches. What John saw that day on Patmos was, as one man puts it, the most reassuring of visions. A vision of the glorified Christ who remains one like a son of man. What his readers in the first century needed to understand if they were to survive all that was thrown at them was that Jesus' glory, majesty, power and most of all his love are constant and unchanging no matter what is happening around them. He stands in magnificent splendour and he has the keys the keys of death and Hades. That monumental reality puts every reason for fear, every reason, in an entirely new perspective. The persecution may be fierce, but there's something greater by far, and it is immovable. What his readers in the 21st century need to understand? If we are to survive our fears, whatever form they take, is that this is still true. He is still the one who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has still made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. All glory and dominion is still his forever and ever. He stands with us here in the midst of the churches, victorious and determined. That's what's real. That's what's really going on. The words were for John in the first instance, but undoubtedly they were addressed to his first readers too. Don't be afraid. And they're addressed to us as well. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. And isn't that just brilliant? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement and comfort of your word. And we pray that in the light of it, we might face this day as your faithful people. And we ask it of you for Jesus' sake.